Proverbs 20, and we're also going to be taking some time and going to Romans 12 and 1 John chapter 1. So Proverbs 20 is we're going to be spending most of the time, but we're also going to be going to Romans 12 and 1 John 1. Let's do the smart thing and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. Um, Thankful for the time to be here, uh, thankful for the season that is upon us, and uh, just pray, Lord, we'd all have a blessed time this Thursday, and just pray we'd truly be thankful for what you've done and what you're going to do. And we ask for your blessing upon just the word today, Lord. You would teach, we would listen through your spirit, in your name, amen. Alrighty, Proverbs 20. Now, we've been studying here through the book of Proverbs, and every time we get into Proverbs here, it all comes back to wisdom. And the way we've been handling the book of Proverbs here is we usually look at one chapter, and then we take this chapter and look at what the main points that God is trying to say. So with this chapter this morning, there's really three main areas that he's trying to teach us something in. And so we're going to take a look at these and look how it pertains to wisdom, to the wisdom of God, and hopefully grow in how we act in our relationships and everything we do. So with that being said, let's see what the Lord has to say here about wisdom. First off, wisdom in relationships. Look at verse 3. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. I love that verse. That verse is just a good, honest verse. It's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. Anybody can start a fight. You know, one of the things that we do is we have a tendency to have things backwards. The way the world looks at strength and the way the world looks at power is generally the one that wins the argument, the one that wins the fight, is the one that is right. And that's what happens. When we get into arguments and fights, we, this, it builds up, the emotion builds up. We want to prove that we're right. We want to prove that we have the right idea. And really, God says sometimes it's not worth it. You know, there's a word that the Bible uses to describe Jesus that we don't use a lot today, and the word is called meekness. And meekness means power under control or power under restraint. And the idea is that if you're meek, you have the power to win. You have the power to fight. But in wisdom, you choose not to. And Jesus had the power. He was God. And many times he chose not to fight and just to let it go. And that's what verse 3 is saying here. It's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. Sometimes the way you show your strength is by not continuing the fight in the argument. Sometimes the way that you show you have power is by not allowing the argument to get the best of you. Because any fool can start a quarrel. You have to ask yourself, when these arguments pop up and you feel the tension building, you feel the emotions taking up, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Look at verse 18. Plans are established by counsel. By wise counsel, wage war. You have to stop and you have to say, Lord, is this worth it? Yeah, we can have a fight. I can ruin the whole day at work. I can ruin the whole evening. I can hurt a relationship here. Is it worth it? By wise counsel, you wage war. Sometimes you stop and the Lord says, just let it go. Well, that's hard to do. You just let it go because it's not worth it in the whole scheme of things. Well, here's what we do sometimes. We have a tendency to just let it go so we won't say anything. But what do we do? We verse, do verse 19. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. So what happens is I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm bothered. So therefore, I don't want to have a fight with you, so I, I don't go tell you. But I go tell everybody else how angry and frustrated and upset and bothered I am. And one of the verses that we tend to forget a lot of times as a church, as a body of Christ, it's in Matthew 18, where it says, if you have anything against anybody, you go to them, you go to them alone and tell them their fault. So often what we do when we're bothered at somebody, we tell everybody else how bothered and upset about what they do, and we never actually go to them. Biblically speaking, if I have something against you, I need to go to you and you 
alone and try to deal with it then. That's the biblical approach. But how often do we do verse 19? Talebearer reveals secrets. And look at this last part. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. Here's the thing. If I'm ever talking to somebody, and they just start talking about other people all the time, what do I think they're going to do as soon as I leave the room? If they don't have a problem talking about everybody else, and when they're talking to me, they're going to reveal everything they think and all their opinions of somebody else, do I think that I'm going to be uh, part of that? They're probably going to say the exact same thing about me. It's just easier to not be a part of it in any way whatsoever. Just let the gossip go. So what happens is any of us can start a fight, verse 3. Any fool can do that. What we need to do is we need to step back, verse 18, pray about, is it worth having this argument? Verse 19, keep it to ourselves, but here's the problem. The problem is you and I, we still get angry. We still get angry. Look at verse 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. We still get angry angry about stuff. And here's the problem as Christians. We have a hard time finding this balance. If you're taking notes, write this down. It's Ephesians 4.26. Ephesians 4.26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. I'm allowed to get angry. It's what I do when I'm angry that dictates whether it's a sin or not. Listen, you're going to get angry. I'm going to get angry. You work with people that are going to make you angry. You live with people that are going to make you angry. You go to church with people that are going to make you angry. Question comes up is, what are you going to do when you're angry? You can choose to go down the path of sin and say something and do something that is wrong and not biblical, or you can stop and say, okay, Lord, I'm frustrated with this, I'm angry about this, but I don't want to let this anger control me. We're all going to get angry, but we don't want to let that anger control us. So what do we do then when we're angry? We're still bothered about it. We're still upset about it. Well, look in that passage in Romans 12 that I had you turn to. Romans 12. We're going to get angry. We're going to get upset. What do we do? What do we do when we've been wronged? What do we do when, when we are on the right and they're on the wrong? What do we do when that emotion is building up? What's the wisdom way to deal with this? Romans 12. As you're going to Romans 12, I just want to share this story that I uh, read somewhere recently. It says, three men married wives. First man married a woman. He told her that she was to do the dishes, the house cleaning. It took a couple days, but on the third day, he came home to see a clean house and the dishes washed and put away. Second man married another woman. He gave his wife orders that she was to do all the cleaning, the dishes, and the cooking. First day he didn't see any results, but the next day he saw it was better. By the third day he saw his house was clean. The dishes were done, and there was a huge dinner on the table. Third man got married. He ordered her to keep the house cleaned, dishes and laundry washed, lawn mowed, hot meals on the table for every meal. Well, the first day he didn't see anything. Second day he didn't see anything either. But by the third day some of the swelling had gone down, and he could see a little out of his left eye. And his arm was healed enough that he could fix himself a sandwich and load the dishwasher. Uh, sometimes it's just not worth it, you know, in the whole scheme of things. So what do you do when you're angry? What do you do when you're upset? Well, look here at Romans 12. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Do you know how hard verse 17 is? Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. This is human nature. You hurt me, I want to hurt you. You wronged me, I want to wrong you. That's human nature, but that's not the nature of Jesus. The nature of Jesus is he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's the nature of Christ. See, sometimes people come in and they want to sit down and talk, and they don't really want to talk. They just want to bash another person. And so they are bashing the other person, 
And I think of this verse, have good for the regard and the things in the sight of all men. And so what happens is you, you say, well, you know, let's, let's be careful about that. Let's, we don't know this person's motives. We don't know what's going on. And next thing you know, that person says, well, why are you defending them? I'm not defending them. I don't know their heart. I don't know their motives. I don't know. But I know this. Jesus died on the cross for that person. I know this. God created that person. That, that person may be a jerk. That may, person may be doing evil. But Jesus died for them, and God created them. So therefore, I want to do what verse 17 says. Repay no one evil for evil and have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So what do I do? Verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. See, I can't make you live at peace with me. I'm not responsible for your actions. I'm responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for trying to live at peace with you. If you choose to not live at peace with me... That's between you and the Lord. The key phrase in that verse 18 is, is, as much as depends on you. You do what you can. I have had times and situations where I have tried to live at peace with people, and they have not wanted to live at peace with me. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, they don't want to live at peace with you. You can't force the change. You can't make them change. I am only responsible for my actions, and that's what I try to do. And there's also been times in my life where people have probably tried to live at peace with me. I didn't want peace. I wanted to fight. And I'm wrong for that. So, repay no one evil for evil. Try to think good. Verse 18, live at peace. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. How many times do we put the vengeance on our shoulders? This person needs to know what they did was wrong. This person needs to suffer the consequences of their actions. This person, and we go on and on, and we feel that it's our responsibility, our responsibility, to make sure that they know they are wrong and suffer for it. God says, vengeance is mine. So what are we supposed to do? Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll keep coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the response of what we're supposed to do. You know how hard that is? It's a good thing that God set us a godly example of Jesus Christ. Because if I just read those verses on my own, without knowing anything about what Jesus went through, I'd very simply say that that is impossible. But yet, when I say it's impossible... Spirit takes me back to where Christ was. And he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He set the godly example of this. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, how many of those are really following him? I don't know. A lot of them probably just wanted a free meal. Jesus set the example of showing love to the unlovables. And he says, that's what I'm asking you to do also. So bringing this all together, any fool can start a quarrel. That we know. We have to pray, verse 18, Lord, do I need to go down this path or is it best for me just to step back? Realize you're going to get frustrated, you're going to get angry, that's a fact, you're a human, I'm human. I don't want to let that anger control me and I want to keep these verses in mind of Romans 12, 17 through 21, of Lord, this is how I'm supposed to respond in love when that anger and that frustration gets the best of me. Here's the thing though, they're still wrong. That's the frustrating part about it, is they are still wrong. Well, look here in Proverbs. Go ahead and look in verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from sin? 
You ever run into somebody that's so convinced themselves they're right that they can't even envision or imagine the fact that they're wrong? It's kind of interesting. I, two times in my life, I've actually met somebody who didn't think that they've sinned. Now, that's just mind-blowing to me. I try to go a good 30 seconds without sinning, and they're saying they've gone their whole life. The first one I remember, I uh, was uh, going to college over at Northwest, and there was a guy that literally came into the atrium at Northwest, and he started preaching that if you're saved, you don't sin. Handed out all this literature, handed out all this stuff, and he believed as Christians, you don't sin. I thought there were so many scriptures that he's taking out of context and so much that he's wrong. And then there was another guy. And, uh, and I remember this other guy making a comment one time about um, he doesn't do anything wrong. And I, I said, you don't do anything wrong? He goes, no. He goes, you know, I, I, I talked to the Lord about it. And he goes, I, I don't think I do anything wrong. I thought that was amazing that there's that mindset of that we don't do anything wrong, that we don't sin. Now, a lot of times I've seen situations where people are caught up in the moment and they're so full of emotion, they don't think they're wrong. But to truly go your life and think, I'm not wrong. I have a pure heart. I'm not in sin. Well, then why did Jesus die on the cross for us? Go, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, James, aren't I without sin? Well, that's part of grace and mercy and righteousness, is when Jesus died on the cross for your sin, going back to theology here, yes, you are made right in the eyes of God. That's what righteousness means. I am made right in the eyes of God. Through his grace and mercy, I am born again and saved. My sin keeps me out of heaven, but through Christ dying on the cross, my sin is taken care of, and therefore I have entrance into heaven. I believe what this passage is talking about, and also what we're talking about here at 1 John, is the person, we're not talking about believing in Jesus, accepting our sin. He's talking about, I don't sin. I haven't done something wrong. Look, look here at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, pretty self-explanatory there, verse 6. I say I'm a Christian, I need to act like it. I say I'm a Christian, I need to walk it. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now look at these examples, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Those are the people that say, I, I don't do wrong. I have no sin. They're deceived. They're deceived. They don't believe the truth. And like I said, you'll run into some people like that that just don't think they've done something wrong. I have no sin. What you also run into more likely is verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Well, I didn't do anything wrong in that situation. I did not sin in that situation. No, 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 no. Oh, we're lying and we're deceiving ourselves. Judah's in this phase right now, and I don't know why, but if he goes up and he does something wrong, and he'll do it like right in front of you. Judah! What are you doing? Why'd you do that? Why, I, you know, fill in the blank. Why'd you hit your brother? I didn't. What do you mean you didn't? I saw you do it right there. You're, you're lying. No, I'm not lying. I'm just teasing. No, that's, that's, that's a fine line there, young man. And it's, it's amazing how when we are approached with our wrongs, all of a sudden we didn't do anything wrong. And I see this a lot in verse 10. I didn't sin. 
I wouldn't have responded that way if he wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have done that if she wouldn't have said that. If they just would have done something differently, I would have. Come on. We're lying and deceiving ourselves. We were wrong in our actions. We were wrong in our response. We were wrong in what we did. We're making God a liar, verse 10. Now think about that. God says you've sinned. I say I haven't. Somebody is lying and somebody's telling the truth. Do you really want to take those odds against God? That he is lying? No. We get angry. We get upset. We see people doing things they shouldn't. We want to have an argument with them. Oh, any fool can start a quarrel, Lord. Do I say something, yes or no? We pray, we seek the Lord. We try to let it go. We try to live peaceably. But this sin idea keeps coming back up and back up again. How do we handle that then? How do we handle what's going on? Jump back here to Proverbs, if you will. Proverbs chapter 20. See, when that sin comes in, and we try to hide it, we try to deceive ourselves, saying we haven't done anything wrong, look at Proverbs 20, verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth will be filled with gravel. See, sin is pleasurable for a time, the Bible says. See, and every now and then I say that, and people get really worked up about that. Oh, don't, don't say sin is pleasurable. The Bible said sin was pleasurable. Think about it. If sin was not tempting and pleasurable for a time, why would we be tempted to do it? So therefore, verse 17, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man. It feels good for a little bit. Whatever that action is, it feels good for a little bit. It feels good to let it go. It feels good to yell and to get upset and make my point and tear somebody down. Fill in the blank. Problem is, after you get all said and done with it, verse 17, afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. It ain't worth it. It's not worth it at all. Now, how long does it take for the mouth to get filled with gravel? Well, sometimes it's instantaneously. Man, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Other times it's the next day you wake up the next morning saying, ah, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I'm sorry. For some people it's months, maybe years, where they have done stuff, lived a life that is not biblical, and the mouth gets filled with gravel later on. Here's the point. I trust the fact that if somebody claims to be born again and walking with the Lord, the Holy Spirit's going to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They may, they may choose to not accept that conviction. They may choose to ignore it. But the point is God will reveal to them that that lifestyle, that those actions, those words are wrong. Their mouth would be filled with gravel eventually. God's promised that. And they'll realize, I shouldn't have gone down that path. So what happens, though, when, verse 9, I, they say they haven't done anything wrong. Verse 17, they're taking the bread by deceit. They're still not changing. When do I get to step in and finally yell and scream at them and tell them how absolutely wrong they are? Well, look at verse 27. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. It's God's responsibility to come in and, and seek the heart, search the heart, I should say, and show us what's going on. You know, every time before we do communion out here, we always go to Psalm 139 where it says, Search me and try me, Lord. Know my heart. See if there's any iniquity in me. And the reason we do that is to stop and say, okay, Lord, what am I wrong in? What areas in my spiritual life am I failing in? Am I dropping in? Because a lot of times I look at my own spiritual life and I say, I don't think I'm wrong. I think I'm doing okay. God comes and searches my heart and says, yeah, I'm seeing some bitterness there. God comes and searches my heart and says, yeah, I'm seeing some stuff there that's not right. See, the Lord searches the heart, the inner depths of the heart, verse 27, and he says these are the areas that need to be changed. Okay, so I have to trust the fact that the Lord is revealing this to that person, that the Lord is speaking to their heart. There's still no change. Well, 
Verse 30, blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. See, if somebody is saved, and they're walking in a rebellious spirit, and they're not listening to the Lord, the blows are going to come, verse 30. The stripes are going to come. You know, we like to jokingly call it a spiritual spanking. It's going to happen, because God loves them. God loves them enough to speak to their heart. God loves them enough to say, this is not right they need to change. But I've seen some people be very rebellious. I've seen people be very um, thick-headed. And, and they take those blows, and they'd rather than changing, they'd rather keep their life the way it is, mouthful of gravel, the blows and the stripes, God's love trying to get a hold of them. I tell you guys, it's so much easier when you have verse 27, when the Lord reveals to you what's wrong in your heart, it is so much easier to go to the Lord, fall on his love, fall on his grace, fall on his mercy, and just say, Lord, I'm sorry for my actions. I'm sorry for what I'm doing. Because the other side of this is verse 30. God in his infinite love will also use discipline to get a hold of you. He loves you enough to do that. Why do we fight it? Wisdom says, let's do the right thing because the right thing is the right thing. Why don't we do that sometimes? It's a lot of work. Do you realize how hard it is to do the right thing all the time? It's difficult to do. Look here in verse 5. Of Proverbs 20. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. See, this idea of wisdom is this, is this idea of this well that you're pulling water out of. In my Bible, I wrote down beside that verse 5, it says, takes work. It takes work to be a believer. It takes work to go deeper in your walk with the Lord. See, most of us today, if you want some water, what do you do? You go turn the faucet on, water comes out. Pretty simple. Jump back hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago here in the Bible. If you wanted water, what did you do? You went to the well, you threw the bucket in, and you drew the water out. Now, if anybody has ever done anything like that where you have to draw something out, you use muscles in your shoulders and your back that you normally don't use. It gets sore and it hurts after a while. A gallon of water weighs, what, I think like eight pounds. That adds up. And so you jump back thousands of years ago to Proverbs 20, and you're watering camels... That's a lot of water to draw out. So when they give this verse here, verse 5, of wisdom, counsel, is like deep water you have to draw out, they would immediately know, yeah, I get it. But they would also immediately know, that's a lot of work. Guys, it's a lot of work to go deeper in your walk with the Lord. It's a lot of work to go deeper in your marriage. It's a lot of work to be a better parent. It's a lot of work to be a better friend. It's work. It is easier to not do it. And when you try and you put that effort into it, your spiritual muscles are going to hurt because it's work. But yet, is that how we look at it? Do we look at it as some burden to go deeper in the Lord? When I was working on the message yesterday, I was sitting at our kitchen table at home and Elias came up to me and he said, Daddy, can we play? And I said, oh, Elias, I would love to play with you. I said, i got to work on the message. You know, i got to get this done. You know, and everything's like, oh, I really wanted to play with you for a little bit. And it's like, oh, buddy, I'd love to play with you too, but daddy's got to get this done. I'm really sorry, man. And, and he walked away, and I thought, wow, what a horrible taste leaving my kid's mouth. I have to study the Bible. I have to prepare a lesson. Because the thing is, one of my favorite things to do out here is preparing the lessons. I love preparing them. I love getting into the Bible and studying it. And I thought, you know what? 
that's not the representation I want to give my kids. So I called Elias back, and I, and I said, come sit on my lap, buddy. I said, let me explain this to you. I said, I want to do this. I want to study this. It takes time, but I want to study this to prepare a lesson to get the verses around so that way tomorrow when I go teach the adults, because Elias thinks that I teach the adults Sunday school because he's got his Sunday school. So he goes, and when I come teach the adults, I said, the mommies and daddies, I said, I want to give them God's word. I want to do this. I want to draw out that water. Elias stops and goes, would you give them candy? Because he gets, he, gets, he gets candy in the back there. So no, I don't give you guys candy. So, But the point is, you draw it out. It takes work. It takes effort. It does. And I, and I don't know where we've gotten this mindset in Christianity that it's easy. My goodness, if, if you want it easy, don't become a Christian. Yeah, there's the whole eternal thing of hell you have to worry about. But on this world... It's hard to do the right thing. It's hard to live our life and go deeper in our walks with Christ. It is difficult to do that. It's drawing water out of the deep well sometimes, but it's so worth it. And see, we have to get that mindset that it's valuable. It is worth it. Look at verse 15. There is gold in a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. It is so worth it to spend time with God. That's the thing is, we have to get this mindset of, of daily times of prayer or in devotions or coming to church or Bible studies. This is not a hindrance. It's not a burden. It's not a have to. It's a blessing to be around the jewels of wisdom and knowledge. To walk away saying, I've gone deeper in my walk with the Lord. I've realized how to be a better spouse. I've realized how to be a better parent. I've realized how to be a better, better person for the Lord. To be a better light and a witness. It's knowledge. It's a precious jewel. And when you look at it that way, you get up in the morning and you say, Well, Lord, I want to spend time with you. Lord, I want to be around the body. I want to hear the Bible studies. I want to hear the teachings. Because that time of worship, that time of praise and teaching, that's a precious jewel that takes me deeper in my walk with the Lord. It's worth it. But if you look at it as a have to, you're not going to get as much out of it. You're not. When we look at it as an opportunity to be around God, Hebrews says that we can boldly go to the throne of grace. How great is that? You have access to God, the creator of the universe, anytime you want. That's pretty neat. We can boldly go to the throne of grace. But once again, it's difficult. It's not easy to get that wisdom and knowledge. Look here real quick at uh, verse 24. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? See, this is the hard part. This world is tough. It's tough to figure out sometimes what the right path is, what the wrong path is. It's difficult. And so when you have that, how can I understand my own way? You know, Lord, what, what am I supposed to do? They offered me the promotion. Do I take it? Do I not take it? Lord, do I, do I sell this at this price? Do I do this? Where do I go? There's so many decisions that we face with all the time. How are we supposed to know the path that God wants us to go? Verse 24, how then can the man understand his own way? Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And yet, what do we always say? Well, if you don't know what you're supposed to do, go spend time with God, pray, read the Bible, give you the answer. But I want it quick. We've shared with you before, Old Testament they used to have this uh, bag they could carry around that had white stone, black stone in it type thing. And they would go up to the Lord and say, Lord, do we attack the Philistines? Stick your hand in the bag. Pull out the, the stone. Whatever color the stone is, that's your answer. Certain color meant yes. Certain color meant no. And that's how they would seek the Lord in certain things. Now, some of us sit here today saying, why can't it be that easy? Just carry around a little bag in my pocket. 
Lord, they just offered me a promotion this morning at work. They want to know this afternoon if I should do it. Okay, Lord, uh, white means yes, black means no. Stick my hand in, all oh, got white. Oh, God wants me to do it. Yes. Doesn't that sound easy? You just carry that little bag with you everywhere you go. Someone says, hey, you know what? Um, we need some help in the back. Do you feel led to maybe teach? Well, you know what? Let me ask the Lord. White means yes, black means no. Stick my hand in, bring it out. God tells me. Problem is you don't have a relationship with the Lord at that time. You have a relationship with a bag. You have a relationship with stones. The Lord means nothing. And so what we have today is a relationship with the Lord. And so therefore, when we need wisdom and guidance, we go to the Lord. We actually get to sit with God, to the precious jewels of the Lord, and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? The problem is, in our McDonald's fast food society, God doesn't answer quick enough. You want the answer now. So when you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? He says, let's chew on this for a little bit. How about every day you pray about this? How about every day I'll give you some more scriptures to look at, and you and I will go deeper in this situation, and we'll pray and seek the Lord. Lord, I don't want deeper with you. I just want a yes or a no. See, well, then you really don't want a relationship with the Lord. Because the relationship with the Lord is spending time with him daily, saying, Lord, what do you want from me? Because why, verse 24, I don't even understand my own ways. I don't even understand what I'm supposed to be doing. One of the songs that we sang today for worship um, was a really neat song, and I wrote down the phrase of one of the things that we sang. It was, above all wisdom, above all the ways of man. Isn't that God? He's above all wisdom. He's above all the ways of man. So therefore, why would I not want to go to him? It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. It matters what God wants because there's things you want, there's things I want, and it doesn't matter what we want. It's what the Lord wants in this situation. So therefore, Lord, I want to go to you and seek you because I have a tendency sometimes to jump the gun. Look at verse 25. It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. See, we have a tendency as human nature to look at it, to analyze the situation, and just say, sounds good. That's what I'm going to do. And what happens in verse 25? We devote rashly something as holy. If you're taking notes, write down this verse beside it. 1 Timothy 5.22. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not lay hands on a man hastily. See, a lot of times what happens out here at church, somebody new will come. And they, they look good. They sound good. Probably maybe are good. And so immediately want to get involved with stuff. And it's like, you know what? We don't want to turn down service. We don't want to turn down a willing heart. But you know what? Let's just give it a little bit of time. Because you may come out here and after a few weeks decide, you don't like us. We after a few weeks may decide, we don't like you. I don't know. But the point is, spiritually, sometimes it doesn't work out. And so therefore, you don't want to lay hands on a man hastily. You want to stop and look and say, okay, is this person called to serve in this area? Is this person called to help in that area? Then let's utilize that person. See, and also what happens a lot, verse 25, people come up with an idea. The idea may be good. The idea may have valid points. The idea may be of God. But you know what? One of the worst things we could do is just quickly jump on this idea and say, we're going to do it. Let's seek the Lord on that idea. Let's see what God has to say. There's been some ideas that have come forward that initially sound really good, and over time, God wasn't in it. There's been some ideas that come forward that initially doesn't sound good at all, and then God was in it. There's nothing wrong with taking time, seeking the Lord, praying, and saying, okay, let's not jump rashly at something. Let's just make sure it's in the Lord's will. But here's the problem. You also don't want to become the church that is so used to its own ways that you ever can't bend and say we can't do something different. 
you let the Lord lead. If God leads, you go forward with it. Because why? It goes back to verse 24. How am I supposed to understand my own ways? How am I supposed to understand what I'm supposed to do, Lord? I don't know. So I need wisdom and I seek the Lord. Because my decisions affect my family. My decisions will affect, verse 7, my descendants. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. So my choices now will affect my four boys at home and possibly even affect the kids that they have if, if the Lord tarries. So I don't want to jump into anything. And how often do I see people in marriage and kids and relationships make rash decisions without thinking about the spiritual inheritance that's being left behind? Or it affects the body. And we don't even think about that too. Look at verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is their gray head. One of the greatest things you have as a body is hooking up a young believer with the wisdom and maturity of an old believer. Boy, that is a great combination. Because what happens is sometimes you have the young believer, verse 29, their strength. Oh, they're willing to take on the world. But they don't have the wisdom of walking with the Lord. Well, then next thing you know in verse 29, you have the gray heads. Oh, they got the wisdom. But the strength's gone. You put those two together... And you have that fire of a young, new believer in the Lord with the wisdom of an old, seasoned saint. That's a great combination. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. That's the reason why God says, hey, book of Titus, older women, help the younger women become the moms and wives they're supposed to be. Older men, help the younger men become the husbands and fathers they're supposed to be. There's supposed to be this balance that comes together of working together where the younger saints don't say, well, you know what, those people have been around the block a few times. They're on the way. No, there's a lot of wisdom. And it's not where the older people have said, you know what, those young people want to come in and change everything. No, there's a lot of vitality and strength there. Find that balance and come together and let the body of Christ be blessed. So, bringing this all together, any fool can start a quarrel. That's a fact. Lord, we want to seek you and make sure that you want us to go down this path. I want to live peaceably with people. I don't want to repay evil for evil. I don't want my anger to control me. But when somebody is living in rebellion and that sin is there and not willing to accept sin, sometimes you need to rebuke them. Sometimes you need to admonish them. But also a lot of times you need to allow the Lord to come into their heart and speak to their heart. And as they speak to their heart, we have to realize that my heart's not right sometimes. That's why I need to go to the Lord. That's why I need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you be the lamp and reveal what's going in my heart because right now my heart... I may think it's where it's supposed to be, but Lord, you know. And the Lord will reveal what's right and wrong in my heart and says, okay, now wisdom says, are you going to make the changes that need to be done? And it's going to be work. It's going to be effort. It's going to take time. It's drawing water out of the deep well. Your spiritual muscles will hurt, but it's so worth it. Don't ever give up. It's so worth it. Now, what normally happens here in Proverbs is we have a few verses that kind of just don't fit into any section really per se. And, and there's an interesting one here that I just want to share with you real quick that I find fascinating. In Proverbs uh, chapter 20, verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And I like that verse. I think it's a fun little verse. See, so often what happens in, in Christianity is we almost feel like we have to defend God's existence. Do you realize when you look throughout the Bible... Never once has God asked you to prove to anybody that he exists. That's not my calling. I don't have to prove that God exists. God says, if you want proof that I exist, he goes, look at creation. Creation is proof enough that I exist. In fact, if you're taking notes in Romans 1, verse 20, 
Romans 1.20, God says creation is the greatest witnessing tool that he has. You just need to get up and look out the window and you see creation and you know that there's something bigger than you out there and that's God. It's too often I see Christians trying to defend God's existence. Now, that's a faith thing. You either believe that God's there or not, you either believe he created it or not. I'm not against science. There's a lot of great Christian scientists that have used a lot of great points and a lot of great intellect to show that side of God, and I think it's very, very valuable. In fact, the church has got some really neat videos out here that uh, we were just watching at home about the uniqueness of uh, God's creation, earth, and uniqueness of some of the animals he created. Beautiful stuff, and it's neat to hear that scientific background of it. But ultimately, I can't prove that God exists, but I know he does. He created everything. I see that. I know the change he's had in my life. It's a faith thing. But yet when I look at this verse in verse 12, the hearing eye and the, excuse me, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. I find it very fascinating. If you study out the scientific and the evolutionary mindset, and I'm not saying I agree with them, obviously, but if you study out what they believe, they can't explain the human eye. They don't understand how it evolved, supposedly, evolved into what we have today. And I find find that utterly fascinating that some of the most important organs we have, being able to see, being able to hear. Now, they have their ideas and opinions on appendages and legs and all that stuff. And this is baloney. But the point is, the hearing eye and the... I keep saying the hearing eye. The hearing ear and the seeing eye can't be explained. Now, why can't it be explained? I think because the answer is found at the end of verse 12. The Lord has made them both. Isn't it fascinating that when Proverbs was written 4,000 years ago, God already answered that question. We can sit here and we can debate God's existence and creation and all that stuff, where God really says it's futile. He goes, I created it, I'm here, and either in faith you believe that or in faith you don't. So if you walk around carrying some type of burden when you talk to your unsaved friends and loved ones about proving God's existence, that's not your burden to carry. God says, I prove my own existence by moving in people's lives and by the creation that I've created. I have proved my own existence. They have to, in faith, accept that or reject that. Just like when I look at verse 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye. Lord, do I believe that? Yeah, I believe that. Why? Because the Lord has made them both. In faith, I believe and trust that's what God has done, and I believe his word backs that up, and I've seen what he's done in my life. I've seen what he's done in other people's life. You see God move all over the, time, all over the place. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, wonderful thing. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. So, wisdom in relationships, knowing when.